We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be, um, Lord willing, finishing up uh, this chapter, verses 11 through 21. I did have just a couple of things from the first 10 verses that I I had not uh, brought up, didn't have time to bring up, but I wanted to open it back up to you all. Um, Remember the the first part of uh, chapter 12 was Paul revealing this this incredible uh, vision this revelation that he had had <clears throat> that he wasn't permitted to speak about <clears throat> in much detail. And then what God had, had allowed him to, to suffer, this thorn in the flesh, in order to keep him um, humble about it. What were some, some additional thoughts or questions that you all had about this particular section? We answered all the questions. All right. Um, so Mike and I were talking about it a, a little bit um, after class on Wednesday night. <clears throat> Who was it that gave Paul the thorn in the flesh? Who was responsible for that? I'm assuming it was God. Okay, <clears throat> you're assuming it was God. I'd say that's correct. Who else was responsible for it? It is, it is called a messenger of Satan. What, what, I'm sorry? Satan. Satan, correct. I believe both of those answers are correct. Both God and Satan had a vested interest in Paul. Satan obviously did not want Paul to succeed or his ministry to succeed. Satan would have been more than pleased for Paul to be overcome with conceit and pride. God clearly did not want that to occur. Both of them were were working in this thorn, working in this experience for their own opposing purposes. It's sobering to think that both God and Satan have opposing purposes in our lives. They are both active and working in our lives. Absolutely right. So, so uh, brought up about Job. Both God and Satan were involved in his life, and they had opposing, diametrically opposed purposes for that man. There are numerous <clears throat> characters throughout, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout scriptures where we can see the, these uh, God and Satan working to achieve their purposes. You think about Joseph. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't godly things that allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery. It was things like jealousy and hatred and bitterness. That's Satan working. It wasn't godly things that prompted Potiphar's wife to make up lies and, you know, the, the lust that was prompting her to act the way that she did. And yet, at the end of all of this difficulty, what is Joseph able to look back and recognize? He told his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph realized and allowed himself to be used by God so that God's purpose could be achieved. So in our lives, when difficult things happen, who are we going to allow to achieve their purpose in our life? 
Because they both want us. Is that sobering to think about? They both want us. And one wants us to, so that he can bless us and give us all the benefits of, of a relationship, a face-to-face relationship, a home with him in heaven, and one wants to destroy it. And so who are we going to allow to accomplish their purpose in our life? And I think Paul recognizes that. He saw this thing for what it was. <clears throat> it was painful. It was hard. Whatever it was, this thorn in the flesh. But he saw, <clears throat> excuse me, I apologize, God's purpose behind it. God was trying to keep him from the destructive nature of pride. And so he was, he was thankful to, to have that uh, given to him. Other examples, really quickly, but you think about uh, the gospel being spread there uh, in, in Acts. What was it that finally spread the gospel outside of the city of Jerusalem? Persecution. Persecution. Threats against their lives was actually what, what accomplished God's purpose to get that thing, to get that message out. You think about Christ himself. What was it that saved us from our sins? His crucifixion. So think about how God uses terrible things. And if we allow them, uh, those things can accomplish his great purpose. So Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. He reminded him, look at what I've given to you. Be grateful for what I've given to you. It's enough for you. Don't get so distracted by what I've taken from you. What else about chapter 12? Uh, The first part of chapter 12. Okay. Uh, would someone, uh, not me, <clears throat> read uh, verses 11 through 21 of chapter 12? So we have a volunteer for that. Josh? Thank you. I have been a fool. <clears throat> you forced on me. You ought to have commended me, since I am not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle So in what way are you worse off than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I am ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you, since I am not seeking what is yours, but you. For children ought not save up for their parents, but their parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be sent for you. If I love you more, Am I to be loved less? Now, granted, I did not burden you, yet, sly as I am, I took you in in my deceit. Did I take advantage of you by any of those that I sent to you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't he walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? Have you been thinking all along that we were defending ourselves to you? No. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ. And everything, dear friends, is for building you up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what what I want. And you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts. Selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God. 
Thank you. I will say, this chapter break is unfortunate. <laughs> he, he ha- he's, he's not finishing his thought here. And so that's my hope. If, if we can get a little bit into 13 uh, today, that'd be great. But we'll see. We'll see how we do. Um, what jumps out to you? What, what's Paul saying? Right. Yeah, and it's it, it's an intense list. It, this is not the only place that that a list like this is is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's a it's a sobering list. These are things that that would have identified those without Christ, and yet he's warning them. Look, the the pattern of behavior that I'm seeing in you, in some of you. If left unchanged, this is what that's going to produce. If I come, I, I'm afraid I'm going to start seeing these things, things you used to be, but you're still struggling with. I don't want to see that. And we'll go into each of those a little bit more in detail. Uh, what else? Oh, Lisa. Yes, and this is not the first time he's used that term. Um, I read it as a bit tongue-in-cheek. These people who are making themselves to be far more impressive and important than I am, they're apostles, but they're super. I mean, look at all the things that they say about themselves. And, um, and he says, I'm not at all inferior to them, even though I, I'm nothing. You know, he's, he's trying to find this balance of a servant of Christ is going to think of himself as Christ thought of himself. How did Christ view himself? Well, he was humble and meek and lowly. He was a servant. That's what Christ said made the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, those who serve. So Paul thought of himself in that same way. But at the same time, he also understood that he had been given authority. And he's going to talk about that. Um, he talked about that back in 10 and 11. He's going to talk about it more here at the end of the chapter and into 13. I'm not totally inconsequential here. I have been given some authority, but these men are making themselves out to be far more important than they ought to think of themselves. We've got Tony and then we've got Bob over here. <clears throat> Could have been boasted also about these 
these wonders that he saw in heaven, but he's told not to. Yeah. Because that's not the message that really needs to be heard. And even though 70 signs and wonders accompanied his message, it's still not the message. And that's what's so baffling to think that if you had signs performed in front of your eyes, that it's still not the thing that convinces people totally. Yeah. And so they're still being swayed by arguments. And Paul's argument isn't through craftiness, but uh, this weak message that he talked about in the, in the first letter. And that's the compelling thing. Yeah. And then, again, that's even more compelling. Not just that you wouldn't accept a, a sign, and also the messages of weak and base things and humility. And they're not being persuaded yet by that, but that reveals more about their hearts. Yeah. And not about Paul and his message. And that's why he's continuing with them about, well, how, what is he brought them of? For those he sent, why are they robbing them? Why did we try to take advantage of you? In fact, it's quite the opposite of that. And we have spent ourselves, and we have sacrificed ourselves time and time again. And this isn't compelling to you. And somehow you'll take that and turn it into the, well, we were robbing you, or we were doing this to you. You've been believing a lie, and like he's revealing that here. Yeah. It's kind of it's a perfect combination of everything he's been talking about in this entire book. Yeah. And so. It's fitting that it's like this is what it's led up to, but I've been laying out this argument this entire book and just saying, this is the way we've come to you. This is, we've not been doing the same thing these other guys have been doing. Here's the distinction. Yeah. They've been taking advantage of you. Yeah, and the distinction is this is the way they've been acting. This is how they present their message. And Paul continually says, I presented it the way that Christ did. Because you think about what happened to Jesus in his ministry. He's literally performing miracles, and they come to him and say, give us a sign. Or the passages that say that a notable sign has been performed among us, we can't deny, but to keep them from presenting this message, like, what are you saying? A miracle has been done in front of us. You think that should be proof enough, but we've got to stamp this thing out because it's, it's not what we wanted. Um, and that kind of, you know, your thoughts, Tony, perfectly lead us into the question that I had asked. Um, throughout this letter, Paul established his, his apostleship and ministry by comparing it with the ministry of Christ himself. In what ways do we see that in this chapter? And we've talked about a couple of those. Paul worked miracles, just like Jesus did. But Jesus didn't come performing miracles saying, look at me, look at this, isn't this impressive? What were his miracles for? Oh, I'm sorry. We've got Bob over here. You're very patient. Thank you. That's all right. Uh, he uses this term here. Uh, before we get to the next question. Sure. He uses this term here, super apostles. I think in a very uh, downplaying way. Yeah. As those who are claiming to be. Nowhere in the scriptures do we ever see any of the true apostles referring to themselves as super apostles. Sure. Nowhere. And uh, it, it's, it's really interesting that those that do don't really have the true credentials that the other apostles do and that Paul has. Yeah. He's got true credentials. Right. They don't. 
And remember, that was a constant struggle of the twelve, even while Jesus was alive. This question of, so, of the twelve of us, who's the greatest? And Jesus tried to dispel that time to time. That's not how this, is, this kingdom is going to work. That's, there's not going to be a hierarchy here. The one who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom is the one who's going to be a servant. And so the fact that you've got these men, a generation removed from Jesus, coming into this church in Corinth, trying to create a hierarchy. Yeah, Paul, but we are so much better than Paul. And here's why. It, it is faulty at its core. That's not the gospel that Jesus taught. Sorry for making you wait, Bob. <clears throat> Think of the, the signs, the, these wonders, these miracles. Uh, the gospel of John uses that term almost exclusively when referring to the miracles of Jesus. Signs. And, and, and says, um, where's that passage? John 20 and uh, verse 20. Why Jesus performed these things. It wasn't to, to draw attention to himself. It wasn't to make himself seem impressive. In fact, early in his ministry, he, he was constantly telling people, don't tell anyone. Don't let this be known. So it says in John 20 and verse um, I've got, uh, 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs were not the goal. That was not why he came. The signs were to help us believe that he was who he said he was. So when Paul came and performed signs, and we are told he had that ability, it wasn't to draw attention to himself. It was to help people believe Jesus was who he said he was. And he does seem to be indicating that these false apostles, these super apostles, were using their signs to draw people after themselves, to make people think that they were something impressive. No, those were intended to reflect back on, on Christ. In what other ways do we see Paul working and acting and living like Christ in, in chapter 12? Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Um, Christ wants us. God wants a relationship with us. And so uh, you can see, uh, verse 14, uh, his, his example there is, look, the, the parents are, are obligated, are responsible for providing for the children because they, they love their children. It's, it's not the, the children's responsibility um, to provide for their parents. And so Christ, Christ gave he gave and gave. Uh, he literally gave until he had nothing left to give. And we see Paul saying that same sentiment in verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that is, that is the epitome of a Christ-like attitude. I'm going to give you everything I've got. Because it's what you need. It's what's good for you. It's what I can do. And if that means I've got to be spent all the way up. Uh, Paul even... Later on in Philippians uh, 2, refers um, his willingness to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He, he was willing to do that for them. And that's very, 
very much like Christ. How else do we see the attitude of Christ in this chapter? Especially, uh, perhaps, later in this chapter. Oh, we've got Micah. Staying there in verse 15, um, not only the act of spending and being spent, um, that, that phrase may be that he, he was intentional in being sacrificial, and then there were times when things were taken from him. He was being spent against his will. Mm. Um, and yet, he does it gladly. And you see that also back in verse 9. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my friends, and so on. Yeah. The, the idea of God loves a cheerful giver. It's not just, he, he wants us to give, and we so always give the love that we, um, but that, that's a big challenge. Yeah. Um, that, do I view my sacrifice with gladness? Hmm. Thank you for that. How, how many of us struggle? I know I certainly do. I've done things for others. I've done things for others. I've served Karen. I've done things at home. And if so much time goes by and no one acknowledges it, what is the tendency in our heart? Like, okay, let's take some time and review all the things I've done for you. Like, that's not how Jesus operated. And that's not how we ought to either. We should be gladly... We should gladly spend and be spent. And we're not going to keep a record so that everyone can understand the great depths in which we've served. That's, that's not what a servant of Christ ought to do. Um, we don't see Paul doing that, and we certainly, we certainly don't see Jesus doing that, and he had every right to. Um, uh, Bob? Yeah, you answered the question you raised about what other ways is he like Christ. Well, I think the verse... Uh, 19, uh, by a part of this, is in, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Mm-hmm. Everything that Paul did, everything that Paul went through, wasn't for his glory, it was for the glory of God, but it was also for their benefit. Yeah. Uh, even the uh, rebukes were for their benefit. What he says in the last part of this chapter is for their benefit to clean things up before it gets there. Yeah. Because it was being accused of Paul that see how much he's suffering, see how pathetic he is in person. They were using that as a way to kind of disqualify him. But Paul was saying, this is actually what qualifies me because I'm living out the gospel. I'm looking and acting and serving like Christ did. So they've got this thing backwards. Uh, yes? Friends, I, I noticed verse uh, 16 there. It seems like the allegation is exactly the opposite of this, that like Paul's trying to get something out of them by deceit. Um, I wonder if it has anything to do with his exhortation at the beginning of the, of the book of complete this work, right? And he's kind of doing all of this remotely for them. So I, I wonder if it's kind of like, well, the other churches are getting a lot more attention than we are over here. We're, we're being used or something. Um, yeah. So, so he's, he's kind of trying to correct that, saying, hey, I sent, I sent all the 
they're working in the same spirit as I am. They're, they're basically just like I am, right? So he's, he's kind of having to flip the script a little bit. Yeah, and I think it also has to do with this collection. It seems like there's maybe some question of Paul's motives of gathering up all this money and, uh, you know, if you're, when you're not looking, Paul's going to actually take a cut of that for himself. I think that's why he brings up um, verses 17 and 18. Did I take advantage of you through any of those that I sent to you? Like, there are other people involved in this collection, both in gathering it and transporting it. He says, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother. I don't know who that is with him. <laughs> Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Remember earlier in the letter, he talked about the ways that they were making sure that this collection and transportation would be above reproach. No one would be able to accuse us of fraud or theft. And so I think there's, again, this part of that, like, who are you listening to? They're, they're making you seem like, here at the very end, I'm going to bait and switch you and, and finally take my cut. He said, That's, has anyone I've sent to you done anything like that? Um, there does seem to be an indication um, because he keeps throwing Titus's name out and never seems to have to defend Titus to them, it seems that they respected Titus. He used that as a name of, look, I sent Titus to you and you accepted him and, you know, would you accuse Titus? Because Titus is working with me. So if you've got a problem with me, you're going to have to throw him under the bus too. And it, it does seem like they wouldn't be willing to do that. Um, Gary? Jesus, before he left the earth, he told his apostles, I'm not going to leave you alone. When I depart, I'm going to send you an elder. And I see that with Paul. He was a spearhead. You know, when he was going to his evangelistic work, a lot of times he wasn't in an area for too long. He got run out, but he always made sure that somebody stayed behind or sent somebody to make sure that they were okay and to encourage them to continue in edifying. Absolutely. Yeah, and that was the motivation for the second missionary journey. Let's go back through the churches that we established, right, and see how they're doing. That was the motivation for that whole trip. Um, yep, Russ, and then Tony, and, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus' ministry at times often involved rebuke. Jesus didn't just come and say the things that made everyone feel great. Sometimes he needed to, to lay it out for them. We see him doing that in love. We see him motivated by love. But sometimes unrepented sin needs to be addressed and discussed and rebuked. And we see Paul doing just as Jesus did here at the, the end of this chapter. Yeah, tell me. So Paul says that he's not taking advantage of that, but I can see how that can be misconstrued by, oh, we want you to send money to the saints in Jerusalem. Oh, uh, you know, there's like processing fees and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, yeah, I that way. Oh, but it's all for a good thing. You know, I can see how that can be perceived that way. But he does say, though, that they're going to send someone that they trust along with the money. So mm -hmm. that... They can't accuse him of that. Yeah. And so, like, that might be being used against him that these uh, super apostles might be using this as, like, see, see, this is how he's going to his way in. Yeah. But then also, 
he's not really said exactly what all is going on with these super hospitals, what all that they're teaching, what all that they're saying. But it is interesting, though, at the end of this chapter, that he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and may I mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And I question, because considering the false teachers that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 2, and what Jude talks about, that this is the kind of things that accompany it. And I have wondered if that's what is occurring here also, that they themselves, by projection of uh, accusations of Paul taking advantage of these people, that that actually is what they are doing, and more than just money. Because it seems like they probably are taking a cut from these people being paid by these people. Mm -hmm. But then also, that they may be taking advantage of them. In yes. Uh... And, and I've, I've heard that suggested. I, I think there is something to that. You have to remember where Corinth was, what kind of a city it was. It was a, a Gentile city steeped in idolatry. <coughs> and often their idolatrous worship involved sexual activity. And so that's what they were called out of. And there is the potential. It's not brought up a whole lot in 2 Corinthians. It is brought up more in 1 Corinthians. But it is brought up here at the end of chapter 12, this idea that many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Uh, he basically uses three terms. Your translations might be slightly different to basically say, I'm covering that entire genre of sins, right? And there are people among you who have not repented of those things. Perhaps there's a draw to, we can still do this Christian thing, but still do some of what we used to do. Yeah, but Paul isn't doing that to them, nor any of those that he has sent also. Right. Not just monetarily wise, but also not taking advantage of them through these means either. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because it's a manner of control. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, we've got some more hands. Micah and then Bob. I appreciate that uh, here at the very end, in the last verse of chapter 12, he highlights some of the themes we saw previously, like repentance back in chapter 7. We saw what type of repentance looks like, mm -hmm. um, and how they were called to uh, purge out the wickedness and cleanse themselves in 6, 17, and 7, 1. But, yeah, the, the, um, the idea of these, this Sexual immorality sort of seems a little out of place, perhaps. Um, maybe it ties in maybe a little bit with uh, the beginning of chapter uh, six, or the of chapter six, where we talk about being unequally yoked and, and uh, who we yoke ourselves with. But if we look at the nature of uh, sexual immorality, I, I have a note that uh, the, the nature of, it, of sexual immorality it's it's selfish. It's impulsive. It will affect our relationships. <coughs> Sexual immorality is not sacrificial. And if you think of the nature of that, those are things that they've been dealing with mm -hmm. throughout the book mm -hmm. uh, of um, having an effective relationship, a, a rift between them and all, of yeah. not being open, opening themselves up, and not being sacrificial, things like that. And so that, I, I, I yeah, yeah, and 
uh, he mentions some of those things uh, in verse 20 um, that would be tied up in that type of sin, right? Jealousy, um, anger, hostility, slander, conceit, you know, sexual immorality would be one way that some of those attitudes would manifest themselves, uh, certainly. Um, we've got Bob. Four Bob. Oh, four Bob. Uh, in verse 20, without getting into the negative adjectives there, uh, I find that section where he says, I might come and you're not going to be who I think you should be, and I'm not going to be who you think I should be. That reminds me of Christ. Christ came definitely wanting to find people who are like the Father. And had he found them, um, his ministry probably would have been a lot shorter. Hmm. On the flip side, they wanted a king, and he came to be a king, but a different king than they expected. Yes. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, there, was, there were many people, even, in fact, his, his apostles, through most of, most of his ministry, who were expecting Jesus at some point to pick up a sword and start fighting. You know, to overthrow those, those Romans, and that's what they were expecting. But that's not the kind of king... That, that Jesus came to be, he did eventually pick up a sword. He's described as having a sword from his mouth in Revelation. He's, he's come to fight, but it's not the kind of warfare that we were expecting. Um, and yeah, that, that, that term there, uh, I, I may find you not as I wish. What did Paul wish to find? A repentant church, actively engaged. And, and earlier, he had every confidence that that's where they were heading towards and, and, and he believed that they could be. He was already seeing some improvement and that was encouraging. But he said, I, I, I hope to find you this way. You may find that I'm not going to be how you expect me. All th- this past while, what have they been being told Paul is like? He's of no consequence face to face. He's quiet and unimpressive. And so when he comes, he's nothing to be afraid of. He's nothing to worry about. And he said, I I may come and be quite different than you expect me to be. And and we'll get to that uh, a little bit more in in chapter 13. He said, I'm not going to come and just ignore what's happening. I'm going to come and and address it with power. Yeah, Bob? I get the impression that these super apostles have really said nothing about sin through this whole thing. You don't hear anything about them condemning these types of activities or, or this direction that's possibly being wrong. All you hear about them is saying, well, that Paul guy, hmm. let's pick on Paul. You know, Paul's not this, Paul's not that. I don't get the impression that they're even touching on the sin that needs to be corrected. And I really think that if they were doing that, Paul would probably say, okay, that's great. Christ is being preached. But it's not. Yeah, and, and we talked about that a few classes ago, right? That typically, if you're in a debate or a conversation with someone, and the other individual starts resorting, not dealing with the topic at hand, but resorting towards picking apart the, the messenger, it is a revealing that they actually have the weaker argument and they know it. That's what happened to the Jews when Jesus. Right? Yeah, they, they couldn't refute what he was saying. They couldn't refute what he was doing. And so they 
tried to trump up charges about Jesus' his character, right? Um, did I have someone else? No? Um, let's talk about some of these things mentioned in, in verse 20. Um, I know that the ESV translates them quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Um, as I mentioned before, there are a couple of other passages that, that have lists like this. Let's turn to a couple of those. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> And I think we've got time. Let's start in verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light." For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And we could continue through the rest of that chapter. I love Ephesians 5. Um, He said, look, this is how you used to be. You need to continually walk as, as what you are. You are children of light. Children of light walk this way, act this way, and live this way. So don't, don't let these kinds of things be found in your speech. Filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. But instead, your speech should be the speech of thanksgiving. Don't walk in sexual immorality and in impurity and covetousness, which is idolatry. Don't, but instead, walk as is, as is proper among saints. Um, there's another passage in, in Colossians chapter 3. And this is, uh, this is the chapter where he's saying, you know, set your minds on things above. Don't get distracted with the things down here. The things down here are going to lead to destruction and death. The things that are above, um, that's where your life is hidden with God in Christ. And so he's, he's encouraging these Christians in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Coming in these, you too once walked when you lived when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away: 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. He said, you, you, you lived in this. You know what this was about and you know where it was leading you. Those things, it is a constant state of choosing to put those things off. And we have help from God the Father and from Jesus to help us do those things. But Paul is making the same appeal to these Corinthians. You, you, know, you know what these things lead to. You know what these things are about. Continuing to read, uh, I'm sorry, I missed this part in Colossians 3. He's talking about the things you need to put off, but it's not enough just to empty ourselves of bad things. We need to fill ourselves with the things of Christ. In verse 12, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, we could keep reading that passage. I love that passage. Um, this is, this is the, the, the commendation that, that Paul is giving these Corinthians. He's saying, I don't want to arrive and see the things that you were called out of. Don't, don't let those things manifest in your life again. And those that are... He says in verse 21, I fear that when I come, my God may humble me before you. Um, I think someone's translation said, uh, I may be humiliated before you. The thought here is that Paul established this church. He presented them the gospel. They responded. They've been active and working, but they've, they've been working on some hard things. Paul's trying to help them. And there are those among them who have sinned earlier and have not repented. And Paul doesn't want to have to come and say, my, my work with these people what, has been in vain. It was something that he consistently said. I don't want to have to come and be humiliated that I've put all this time and effort into these people and they've still chosen to, to live like the world. He says, I don't want to have to mourn over them. Again, not lord it over them or point the finger at them and bring them down, but cry and mourn over them, because that's not what he wants for them. Uh, Lisa? Lisa? I was just going to point out that uh, verse 21, what, what he's pointing out, these sins that have been ongoing or happened in the past that have not been repented of and uh, left are, are biggies. They're big ones. Um, I'm not saying, uh, obviously, that there's different sides of sin to God, but they are things that maybe most of the congregation may not be participating in, or at least in our culture today, maybe it's easier to separate and say, hmm. okay, but then go back up to 20. And I've heard this um, suggested, and it really makes sense to me that um, it's possible that the members in Corinth who were not participating, they had left behind maybe some of these sexual impurities um, and sensualities, but maybe they are now struggling with the quarreling and the gossip and the anger and the contention with their brethren who are still in these things. And I think we can, a lot of us can more easily fall prey to anger about some situation or sinfulness that we don't participate in or don't understand 
but we are to be compassionate. We are to reach out to each other no matter what. And sometimes that's something good to yeah, I mean, the, the letter to the, the first Corinthians opened with Paul recognizing that there were notable divisions already taking place and that unity was a struggle amongst this church. And things like that are going to happen when there's quarreling or, or um, jealousy. Anger, this is a word that's, that's simply describing uncontrolled temper, something that, that uh, boils over. And how, how many of us have been guilty of that? Uh, mine says hostility, but some, uh, some would simply say selfishness. It's I want what I want, and I'm less concerned about the needs and wants of others. That's hostile. It's hostility. Slander. <clears throat> this is a, a false and malicious spoken statement. This, uh, the New Testament emphasizes strongly the necessity of avoiding this sin. So the, the passages that I mentioned in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, the works of the flesh that are mentioned in, in Galatians 5, slander is in almost all of those lists. The tendency and the temptation to repeat or speak something false and, and malicious. Gossip is closely related with that. It's not necessarily something false, but it could be defined as a casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people, typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. Casual or unconstrained conversational reports about other people. So is it true should not be the litmus test that we use to talk about other people to other people. That's not the question. A better question based on Paul's example here is, will it build them up or tear them down? Because it may very well be true, but am I sharing with somebody else information about somebody else for their benefit or, or for tearing them down? Whether or not it's true. And if there's even a question that it might not be true, absolutely do not share that. Absolutely don't share that. Verify that. But that was an issue here at, at this church. I mean, think about Paul's doing all of this and defending himself because you've got these false apostles telling them all these things about Paul, gossiping and slandering about Paul, and this, this letter is filled with him trying to clean up that mess. Um, gossip and slander has, has no place. Conceit is just a word that, that means uh, swelling, causing one's own sense of self-importance, right? Uh, the, the Bible sometimes says puffed up, right? And I always get this vision of like a puffer fish, you know, and how, how ridiculous that, that is. That, that's not the image of, of what a, a Christian should be. And disorder. Disorder is simply a word that means uh, tumults. That's not commonly in my vocabulary, but insurrection is another word. Insurrection, which have no place in the church, since God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Disorder occurs when there are those among the group that are attempting to overturn the authority that's been set up. And that's what's happening in Corinth. They're trying to make themselves as more important than, than the role that they had been given. And that causes disorder or, or insurrection. 
We've got just a few more minutes, maybe a few more seconds. What other thoughts or questions do we have? Oh, Josh. There it is. Okay. Um, We have one final class on Wednesday. Uh, It had been my hope that we could just read through the whole letter on Wednesday. We still have chapter 13, and I want to do service to that particular chapter. So uh, come prepared to discuss 13, and uh, we'll see how much we can get, get through. Thank you all.